So a boy and his really good next-door neighbor friend were gathered together in in the bathroom, and they observed something in that bathroom. They didn't know exactly what it was. They had an idea. And the neighbor looked to the boy, and as they knelt down and studied it, he said, what is this? And he said, you know what? I'm not exactly sure. All I know is that when you stand on it, it can make you mad or it can make you cry. I think you understand what I'm talking about. Yes, there are things that can control us in this way, and life circumstances can do this. Have you ever had something control you before? I can remember after my nasal surgery, I had, wow, I'm guessing it was probably about 10 or more years ago. I, had, I was on some pretty strong meds and apparently was saying stuff, and they actually said I was funny. I couldn't believe that. So uh, I, I remember, though, waking up at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and there was this incredible dread in my soul, I, this emotions. I don't know. I can't describe it. And I felt like I was going to die. And I stood up and I just thought, what am I going to do? I'm about to die. And I really, truly believed I was about to die. And then my mind just started waking up just ever so much. And I realized, hang on a second. I'm not about to die. This is only nasal surgery. And the Spirit of God began to speak to me and encourage me in the midst of this incredible fog. And I was in the recliner. I sat back down on the recliner, kicked back, and the Spirit of God gave me peace, and I fell back asleep. Yes, meds can definitely make us feel, yeah, and control us. Uh, I can also remember, though, um, in which I, I was a young boy, probably about 14 years of age, and I'd come down with pneumonia the week before Christmas, and I had spiked a really high temperature at, at Christmas Eve. Everyone else had gone to bed, and I came downstairs hallucinating, and I don't know what I was thinking. Our house was under attack. That's all I knew, and I needed to defend my family, and so I, I spied the enemy, and I ran across the room and tackled the recliner. I tumbled over it. It came down on top of me, and my dad heard the ruckus and came downstairs. <laughs> Michael, what are you doing? I don't know, Dad. I'm defending the family. <laughs> I don't know what I said. But what a hallucination. Yeah, meds, hallucinations, they can be pretty far- powerful stuff in controlling you. But you know what? Our jealousies can control us. Our fears can control us. And emotions, desires, these things can control us. I remember when I first met my wife-to-be, Meredith, and within, no lie, within two and a half months, I wanted to propose to her. And this is a guy, I saw myself as a pretty level-headed guy, not controlled by my emotions, and my two closest friends pulled me aside as I was sharing my plan with them, and they looked at me in horror. Mike, what do you think you're thinking? Come on, Mike. Think clearly now. And he kind of gave me one of those skin bracer slaps in the face, wake up type of talk. And I realized, well, maybe they're right. So I asked Meredith and I said, so how long do you think a couple should actually know each other and date before they 
even consider engagement. And she said, oh, at least a year. Condemnation. All right, think clearly. But the truth is, guys, these emotions, these desires like anger, jealousy, greed, they can control us. And we are called to be led by the Spirit. We're, we're called to walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. But this can be really hard at times. How do we do this thing when emotions especially and, and desires are trying to control us to do things that are contrary to God's will? How do we walk in this thing that we're calling life in the Spirit? How do we do that? And we've been looking at Jesus and the trial that he went through, the temptations. We've seen the power of the Spirit with regard to authority uh, that he's given us in Christ, the power that we have by the Spirit. How do we do God's will, though, when it is so hard at times? Jesus' ultimate purpose was the cross and the resurrection. His ultimate goal in coming to this earth was to save us from our sins. How many of you have ever seen the passion of the Christ? Things that led up to the cross and his death on the cross. Very overwhelming emotionally, truly is. But what it can show you, and it can only show you this, is the physical suffering of Jesus. I remember the pain and anguish, even the tears that came to my eyes when I was swatting that ant off that board, and there was a splinter sticking out, and it went right through my finger. And I had to break it off on both sides, and it swelled up. And about two months later, it eventually, good chunks came out. Um, <laughs> Jesus did not just have a splinter. Jesus had a crown of thorns stuck in his brow. Jesus endured the 39 lashes that ripped the flesh off his back. Jesus endured the nails through his hands and the nail through his feet. And yet that wasn't even close to half of the suffering that he endured. I cannot imagine the suffering that he endured as the son of God who never experienced sin, the guilt or anguish or guilt of even one sin, and all of Mike Curtis's sins were placed on him that day. What? That is what he endured for me. I cannot imagine it. And so when we start talking about the pain of the cross, can you imagine the thoughts going through Jesus' mind as he was carrying the cross? Eventually, Simon carried it for him, but as he was walking down La Via Dolorosa, that is the Spanish name that's given to that way of suffering, that road that led from the judgment to the cross the thoughts that were going through his mind. But I'm going to tell you, as intense that, as that could have been, Jesus had already fought that battle with emotions and desires. The, the potential fear of that pain and of the weight of my sin, and come on, guys, all of yours too, not just mine, all of those sins placed on Jesus physically crushing him. That is what Isaiah 53 says. He was crushed for our transgressions. The last song that we sang, by the way, is my sermon. I'm actually, I actually entitled it Press. Okay. Um, except the focus will not be wine, but something very close but different. Listen. Jesus 
had to think through the cross. Jesus had to think through the pain and not just the physical suffering, as absolutely intense as that was, but he had to think through the mental and emotional anguish of bearing my sins and yours. I cannot comprehend that. If there was an English word for Selah, I would say that right now. Pause and consider that, the weight of the cross on Jesus' shoulders, and not just the physical, the spiritual, as the Son of God. Mm. Nothing in our life experiences would be able to begin to paint a picture for us on that, except the guilt that we feel when we've suffered one sin and feel absolutely horrible about it. All of that, Isaiah says, crushed our Savior. But Jesus had a preparation for the cross, and it was not just la Via Dolorosa. Jesus' preparation took place in Gethsemane. But before I get to Gethsemane, which is going to be the focal point of the sermon today, I want us to realize that what I'm about to preach on applies to every single one of us. Because every single one of us has our cross or Calvary, and every single one of us has our Gethsemane. As a matter of fact, we have many of them. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing Timothy here, and if you've ever seen Paul, Apostle of Christ, this is where, at least in the movie, Luke joins him. Uh, he actually does, but I just don't think he joins him to write the book of Acts. He did that earlier. But Paul does pen this letter in that dungeon to Timothy. Timothy, his true son in the faith. He led Timothy to the Lord. Timothy was under his wing in discipleship, nurturing, encouragement, and then being released to minister. And Paul, he says this concerning his life of ministry in verse 6, 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out like a, what church? A drink offering. Julianne actually mentioned that phrase today, drink offering in our worship time. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, please forgive me as we discuss this concept that I'm going to get into that's going to start with a drink offering here. I understand that in the grand scheme of things, there is the grace of God and there is our faith. And that much of life comes to us by grace through faith. How do you walk through trials? By grace through faith. How do you deal with broken relationships that hurt? By grace through faith. How do you walk through any suffering? By grace through faith. How do you even get saved, church? Tell me by grace through faith. And so we have these concepts, and many times 
we focus, or scripture rather, focuses on the amazing grace of God, and other times it seems as if he's focusing on what we do in this, in the trial, and the hardship, and we come across words like self-control, which actually in the grand scheme of things is a fruit of the Spirit, and it is not self-controlling me, but it is rather the Spirit controlling self, therefore self-control. So there are going to times, there are going to be times in which Scripture and and myself today, there tends to be a focus on one of those and not always this perfect synthesis of by grace through faith. But I want you to know today that that is the balance always in our walk with Christ. Always. Now, though it may sound like my focus today is on what we do, please understand that The title of this series is Life in the Spirit. Jesus, though it does not say it here necessarily in the text we're going to come to in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did source the Spirit. But what did he do? What do we do? Paul here says that he is being poured out like a drink offering. It actually says in in Philippians chapter 2, Verse 17, but if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. What is this concept of a drink offering? Because when we understand that, I think we're going to realize that all of us participate in the cross, not just a conversion, but throughout our life, we live this laid out sacrifice life, a drink offering was a certain amount of wine. It is that wine which was then poured out. It was always measured. It was poured out along with the grain offering. The grain offering was the crushed grain with oil. The drink offering was the wine. You have the oil and you have the wine. The wine and oiled with the, or the, the grain offering, they were offered up with just about every, if not all, sacrifices. Now, there is not enough information for us to conclude definitively about this drink offering, but it's very possible that the drink offering was poured out either on the ground or it was poured out upon the altar or maybe even perhaps poured out upon the sacrifice, but it always accompanied a sacrifice. And so when Paul is saying that he is being poured out like a drink offering, he is saying, I have sacrificed. This is the essence of my life. When I step back, when you step back and you look at all of your life, when one day you lay on your deathbed and your life flashes before you like a panoramic film and you see all of it at the same time, what is, what does that look like? For Paul, he is saying, drink offering. I fought the good fight. Now, again, that sounds very much like Paul's just struggling so hard to serve Christ in his own strength. But I assure you, he said to the Colossians, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And so this is a fight that he had fought. 
This was not something that was easy. It was, he was poured out. And he says on the sacrifice and service coming from their faith, the Philippians, they, they had come to faith in Christ. And Paul's life was poured out for that so that what? They could serve and sacrifice. So that they too would be a poured out drink offering upon others who would come to faith in Christ. So that they would be able to be poured out like a drink offering and see others come to Christ. So our life, if we were to step back and see this panoramic view, our life would be defined, as Paul says here, as a drink offering poured out. That is a sacrifice, Romans 12.1. We are living sacrifices. And so my point here is all of us can understand this concept of the cross. Now, understand this. On the one hand, the cross is an example to us. There is this sense of transfer. There is this sense of me hanging on the cross. In many respects, I died with Christ and my life is now hidden with Christ and God. And the very fact that now I live a sacrificed life. That's why Jesus says, whoever would come after me must deny self, take up his cross and follow him. A life that is not lived for oneself. And so what I need us to do is now step into this concept of Jesus' cross and how is it an example for us, that transfer. There are certain things about the cross that do not transfer to us. Zach, you're an awesome brother, but you didn't die for my sins, did you? No. Saxon, I love you, brother, but you didn't die for my sins either. Jesus did. And that is what does not transfer. But I have seen Zach and I've seen Saxon, amazing young men of God, live like a poured out drink offering, serving. First thing that came to me, what can I do to serve? What can I do to help? So that's the transfer. That's what we understand. But some of those moments, some of those crosses, and there's many of them in our life, they're very difficult to live that life that is poured out. There is sacrifice. There are emotions and there are desires that can keep us from our cross. There are emotions and desires that wanted to try and be stirred up within Jesus to keep him from the cross. Now, I did mention that on the Via Dolorosa, I'm sure that he was thinking about this, not just the physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering. The fact that he would be crushed for my iniquities and all that that implies that is beyond my understanding. But Jesus was prepared for the Via Dolorosa in Gethsemane. So turn with me then to Luke. Luke chapter 22. I want us to look at this concept of Gethsemane. I think it's got a lot of implications for us that we can glean from. <clears throat> and in Luke 22, we come to verse 39. Jesus, by the way, had just spent the Lord's Supper, the last Passover meal with his disciples. He had just told them, according to, in order to fulfill the scriptures, that the shepherd must be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And he says, you all will fall away tonight on account of me. 
you will all turn away. And you know Peter, never me, Lord. Well, actually, Peter. But I'm not going to get into how Peter dealt with Gethsemane. I want to deal with how Jesus did. And he says here in verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Now, I realize that Luke is one of the gospel writers that does not mention Gethsemane. Matthew does, I believe Mark, but he does not mention Gethsemane. Gethsemane is this place on the Mount of Olives. This word Gethsemane literally translated means oil press. Oil press. Tremendous significance just in that name. Here, Jesus finds himself pressed. Well, how much is Jesus really being pressed here? Matthew says that Jesus confesses to his disciples that he needs to pray because he is in so much sorrow, he is at the point of death. Now, Jesus knows he cannot die in the Garden of Gethsemane that death has got to await him on Calvary. And so something's got to happen here. Now, I do not understand the depth of that anguish and sorrow that Jesus experienced because I've never experienced the cross as Jesus did. And so consequently, Jesus is being pressed in at this point. God the Father is needing to deal with Jesus' desires and emotions, as he is contemplating or had been contemplating this through the, the Passover meal, the last Passover meal with his disciples, seeing Judas now head out, knowing exactly what Judas is going to do, the time, the clock is ticking, and his time is coming. Can I ask you this? Have you ever felt so much fear something was about to happen and there was just this incredible dread that came upon you maybe to the point where you couldn't eat you couldn't sleep you knew it was coming it was inevitable there was no way out of it kind of like when I didn't study for a test and I had to get up the next morning and take it going in there thinking why didn't I study more for this test or a an encounter that you're about to have and you dread it. You've heard my story about, well, it actually happened many times, but one in particular in which I came home. 
And I was completely disrespectful to my mother. She sent me to my bedroom. And I remember laying down in my bed as the top bunk and dreading when my dad would walk through that door. And at 5 o'clock, hearing him say, Hello, hun. Yes. And then the voice trailing off as they left the living room, go into the dining room, and I'm wondering, what is my mother telling him? He's going to come in here, and he's going to pull out that 10-foot-long belt, and he's going to whip me, and I'm not going to live through it this time. And I dreaded that. Have you ever dreaded something so much? Yep. Jesus is feeling that sorrow, that anguish, that dread. His emotions and desires were coming to a head. They needed to be dealt with. As a matter of fact, so intense was this that Luke tells us that his blood were as if it were drops of blood. Excuse me, his blood were as if it were uh, his sweat. There we go. Were as if they were drops of blood. Now, I don't think that it's saying that his sweat was just profuse and you know, little beads of sweat. I mean, there's nothing un, uh, extraordinary about that. I don't think that it was saying that his sweat were, was really big, like drops of, because blood is thicker than water, right? So the drops of blood are thicker than water. I don't think it's getting at that. I think he's trying to tell us that his blood, his sweat looked like blood. They call this hematidrosis. Because this is when you're under, this can happen when someone is under so much duress that the capillaries actually break and come out of their skin with their sweat. And they sweat drops of blood. This is the type of stress and strain that Jesus was under. Jesus was being pressed. Hebrews 12.5. I understand that this passage, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that's verse 4, but he says, no, none of you have resisted to the point of shedding blood. And I understand the context is the cross there, but I believe that it's not just the cross, it includes Gethsemane. Jesus was resisting at that moment. How do I know that Jesus was in this battle and was resisting even to the point of shedding blood, partially, but more fully on the cross? How do we know this? Two reasons. Number one, Jesus, in this text, he tells his disciples, watch and pray. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. You see, that's where the desires and the emotions stirred up within us can lead us. When you, have you ever been in a situation where an emotion took hold of you and you felt like a runaway train wreck? Anger. If, if you have ever had anger control you, and even as a child of God, okay, I'm going to do this right, I'm going to do this right, I'm going to, and then you just explode with their anger. And it's like, man, what happened there? Or how about jealousy? Guys, you get jealous about the girl you're courting or the girl that you're, you're now married to, and a jealousy is stirred up, and you can say and do things that are pretty stupid, okay? And, and I've had that happen with me. And God has had to deal with my heart, but I'm, I realize that I'm fragile and emotions and desires can control me. 
They can control me to do things that I will terribly regret later. How do we live this poured out life? How do we live it in a way in which our desires and our emotions do not control us? Fear is one emotion that Jesus most definitely could have been flirting with here. And the extent of that fear, that dread, that anguish, that sorrow, I cannot fathom. But Hebrews 12.5 says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, implying that Jesus did. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, two things become evident. As you were to read all the accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane, you will discover two foci, two focuses, if you will. Number one, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. God's desire is that we not fall into temptation. God is bringing us in this life in the spirit. God is bringing us into constant circumstances in which we have the opportunity to be poured out like Paul as a drink offering, fighting the good fight, resisting the enemy, walking in victory. Yes, experiencing our cross and taking it up every day. And so I'm going to assure you that even though you may go through many crosses, you will also go through many Gethsemanes. And you will be pressed in and you will, there is something, this emotion, this desire that is going to want to control you. And yet, how do we deal with this? Jesus dealt with it. So his disciples needed to pray because they realized later that any association with Jesus could cause their eventual death too. Jesus did not cower from that death, but his disciples did. Why? Because they slept during their Gethsemane. And my charge to you, church, don't sleep through your Gethsemane. It is so crucial. And when we pray, and when that yielding of my will to God's will, which is the second element that speaks to us through this story of the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will, we will be pressed in. And we will. there is this desire to yield to the desire and the emotion. And God is saying, no, 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 deal with it. Deal with it now. This is an issue of our will being surrendered to his so that we can be that poured out drink offering. So Jesus is going through this press, this Gethsemane, this oil press, and this circumstance is weighing so heavy on his heart and is pressing in about him, and he is in turmoil. It actually says in another gospel, Jesus says, Father, nothing is impossible with you. So take this cup from me. I, I want you to realize how human Jesus is in realizing 
this emotion that is trying to control him. And that is the key here. Will your emotion or will your desire control you? You're feeling the anger or the jealousy. You're feeling the longing, the greed, the wanting of something. And it's beginning to control you. What do you do? Right then and there, God is saying, you need to have a Gethsemane. Don't sleep through it. This was intense for his disciples, but they weren't prepared. Jesus told them about it. And it says for the very, they were, the reason why they slept through it was because they were so sorrowful. Excuse me. How sorrowful do you think Jesus was? But he didn't sleep through it. Our Gethsemane is crucial. And I'm going to tell you this. Before God calls us to do something that's really hard, he will always allow you to sort through the emotions and the desires that will combat you, that will come against you. So that your will is surrendered to his. But here's the problem. And Jesus intellectually understood this. Did he not? That the cross was the only way. It was the only way. There is no magical wand that God could wave over the people and just say, you know, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. Just ask me to forgive you of your sins. Out of the grace of my heart, I'll do it. No, something had to happen to my sin. And Jesus knew this going into the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew this going to Calvary. And yet he's saying, God, you're all powerful. Is there not another way? But knowing there really isn't. I don't want to get too far into this, but having a human understanding and mind, maybe there's a possibility I'm not seeing here. But in his heart of hearts, he knew this is my destiny. And this is so hard, Father. And he was pressed. And he was crushed. But Gethsemane is called what it is meaning oil press, because even as Jesus was pressed, this press creates oil. Now, I don't think I am going too far off the beaten path here and where the gospel writers want us to go, but why do they even tell us the name Gethsemane? I believe it is this, because as Jesus was pressed, he at that moment was being anointed with that oil for what he needed to accomplish his cross and resurrection for our salvation. It is in your Gethsemane that you will find yourself coming out of freshly anointed for what God has for you to be poured out like a drink offering. Exactly. And this is our life. And it is a joy. And so Jesus, as he goes through Gethsemane and as he's being pressed in, he is actually being anointed and empowered by the Spirit to accomplish Calvary. And everything in your life in this ministry of being poured out will be anointed more and more as when we enter and come out of our Gethsemane, having our will surrendered to him. I'm just going to let you know, some of your Gethsemanes will truly feel impossible. I can't do this. I can't do this. 
The temptation is too, too strong. The emotion is too strong. God, I can't deal with this. It is beyond me. But church, my God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But he will make a way of escape. A way out. Now, I don't want to give us this impression that Jesus had a Gethsemane and he had to just somehow at that moment muster up as much willpower as he could, which would really be contrary to what he's praying, not my will, but yours be done. But it is the surrender. And for us to say that he, he was able to, to just somehow in Gethsemane release his will, release his desires, turn his back on his emotions and not allow them to lead him because even as before Gethsemane, there was, excuse me, before Calvary, Jesus had his Gethsemane. Before Gethsemane, Jesus had, now listen here, Jesus had this way about his life that was in amazing fellowship with the Father. And I'm just going to tell you this. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture in a moment, but I'm going to tell you this, that if you want to go through your Gethsemane successfully so that you can live this way of the cross throughout your life, this next step that I'm going to touch on, which is at the heart of this thing called life in the Spirit, is absolutely crucial. As you were to, if you were to look at Jesus' life and his relationship with the Father. He loved being with the Father. He loved being with the Father. It says in Mark 1.35, let me turn there, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The reason why he did this is revealed later when they try to find him. Everyone's looking for you. And his response is, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And Jesus constantly lived this poured out drink offering ministry because of this what we're reading here. This connection with the Father. This life that he drew from his Father by the Spirit as he walked in this amazing relationship with his, kid, with his Father. It was so deep and so profound that it says, he says, he confesses, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only see, I only do what I see my Father doing. When would he see what the Father is doing. Now, I'm going to say it's very possible that he could see it in his mind with every ministry, or he could see it. The Father revealed it to him in these intimate times with him, which wasn't just, let me read my Bible scripture for the day or my chapter. Let me go through my scripture memory verse, and then let me say my five, uh, our fathers, which art in heaven, and then I'm good to go. But there was this intimacy with the Father that he drew from. There was life that he received in this time of communion with him. 
And as he walked through every life situation, he drew strength from this because of this consistent walk with the Father. Now, in Ezekiel, it tells us this. Let me turn there. In Ezekiel 36, verse 27. This is a promise concerning the Spirit for the new covenant. In verse 26, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. One that beats, one that bleeds, if you will. One that feels. One that's not driven by law, but the spirit. One that's pliable in the hands of God. And this is what he's going to do. He says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I can remember a time in my life in which I was being pressed. I knew that I had been called to full-time ministry when I wasn't sure exactly how that was going to look, what it was going to look like. I was not exactly sure. I knew that he had called me to be a pastor. And things in my life after I graduated from seminary became less clear, not more clear. And I began to see what I thought was an open door for ministry closed. And I remember it took me about one month to work through this. I cannot tell you the number of times in which in my feeling pressed, I wept before the Lord. God, you've called me. I went to, to seminary. I truly believe that this isn't for everyone, but I truly believe that's what you had for me. And now that I'm graduated and, and you suddenly closed that opportunity for me. What are you doing, God? I began to doubt the call of God in my life. I began to doubt just about every step that I took from the time that I was young and feeling this call and moving in this direction. God, what are you doing right now? Where are you right now? I am hurting so much. And on my face before God, he had to realign my will with his. And I want to tell you that those times of intimacy with him, that was life to my spirit. That was like God breathing into me. And I was very vulnerable. And I went through the gamut of emotions and desires and dying to all of that and just coming out of all of that, that month of seeking God, many times fasting, Sometimes giving in to those emotions and desires and fears and even anger towards the Lord, feeling, God, did you, did you just, did you disillusion me? Did you set me up for me to fall like this? Is that who you are, God? And in that month-long time, and it did last maybe a little bit longer, but for the most part, that one month, God brought me out saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever my life is to look like, I am here to serve you, period. 
And I want to ask you, as you are building this relationship with Jesus and feeling, allowing him to minister life to your spirit so that every time you enter into this Gethsemane, you have everything you need to be able to, at the end of that time, say, but not my will, yours be done. God's, God's giving that to you. Are you sleeping through this time, or are you engaging? The disciples slept, Jesus engaged. Because this will determine how you go to your cross, how you live this poured out drink offering type of life, how you face every trial that you go through. Do you constantly, as I mentioned earlier this morning, constantly putting the, your problems under a microscope and analyzing them and saying, where are you, God, when you need to take a step back, dial it up, dial it out a bit, and be able to see, wow, God is all in this. Don't get tunnel vision. Don't get so focused on this problem that the problem gets magnified and not Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where the father was able to deal with the will of his son, that's what prepared him for Calvary. So we have a choice. We either come before him in this wine press for greater anointing, but definitely being pressed in and crushed, or we sleep through it. We allow the problems and the struggles overwhelm us with worry, fear, jealousy, anger, you name it, and we end up giving in to those. Or we say as Jesus did, Father, but not my will, yours be done. Every Calvary needs a Gethsemane. And you'll have many of those. And my challenge to you is don't sleep through them. My challenge to you is right now, be richly entrenched in this relationship, life-giving relationship with God so that when your Gethsemane comes, you can say, yes, God, no matter how hard this is in my life, not my will, but yours be done. Amen, church? Can you receive that word this morning? God, your word is so true. I believe it speaks life to us. And I'm asking you, Lord God, show every single one of us how we are to leave here and be able to embrace our Gethsemane and be able to work through these struggles, these emotions, these desires that pull us in so many directions that, Father, we honestly feel like throwing in the towel at times. And we become so frustrated. Right now, God, I ask, speak life in your spirit to us, that your spirit would be stirred up, moving us to do your will. Moving us to fall deeper in love with you. Moving us to be able to step back and see your goodness in all of this, what we might right now see as disarray. So many problems, so many struggles, we don't even know which end is up. Show us Jesus, though, today, God. Show us the Jesus covered in sweat and blood, saying, not my will, but yours be done. 
And then show us the Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And with a heart and a will set like flint, purpose to walk in your ways. May that be us, God. Jesus, we love you so much. Stir up your spirit in us, God. Speak life to us every day. Because our heart truly is, God, not my will, but yours be done. Would you do this, God? So that we would be able to live out this life of the cross, this sacrifice, this way of being poured out like a drink offering. In Jesus' name we pray.